Welcome to the Bible Academy podcast. Thank you for joining us on this exciting journey through the tabernacle into the presence of God. We hope you enjoy the teaching and you can take lots from it as you listen and journey with us. We do apologise for the second part of the recording for its lack of quality due to some technical issues, but we have rectified that and things will be back to normal in our next recording. Thank you once again and enjoy the teaching of the tabernacle. Yeah, terrible lot, terrible lot. Well, I, I don't have to introduce myself because I know all of you and uh, seen all of you over a period of uh, months or years. Um, I'm, I'm so pleased that this is happening. Uh, pleased to be here. It's, it's taken some time uh, to get it all together. Um, it's it's going to be an adventure. And what I think will happen is as we come week by week, something will build in the whole thing and there'll be a spiritual dynamic to the whole thing. That's normally what happens as you commit to something and you and the Holy Spirit is there present to do it. If the Holy Spirit doesn't come, all you're going to get is a talk and uh, it won't be very good. Uh, so I'm just being really honest. I mean, that's the best I can do is come and and present it to you but we need the Holy Spirit to come and to take it and to minister it personally to everyone's life because you're all at different levels or understanding or maturity so the Holy Spirit is brilliant at just taking that and ministering it to every heart so I'm excited about that. We came, Daphne and I came here to Hastings about three years ago and I've learned over the years to wait patiently for God to open doors that's very clear from scripture and so I was quite anxious to get something started and do some teaching but um, I had to wait uh, but it was um, I know when it was it was on Wednesday the 11th of March this year uh, I was just in my office with a couple of people uh, praying for a particularly young lady I think it was and the Spirit of God just said do it just do it now so uh, it's lovely when God speaks because you think this isn't my Bible Academy it's his I'm just coming along and being faithful for what he's uh, orchestrated or ordered and so it starts so the thought was when God spoke that was six months ago and I thought well by Easter we'll get it going but then of course all this happened so it's been a long six months well it's been six months and ten days actually and I've never waited so long to start something like this so actually I'd be more nervous about this than uh, I would normally uh, be but um, that, that's not always a bad thing God has assembled a, a team of us and I'm very appreciative to that so we've got Dan and Natalie who's taking care of the administrative staff and uh, the re refreshment type things when we can do that so we're waiting for that uh, Daphne's busy at home on the machine she will come but she's finishing off another course that she started previously my son Luke in Scotland he's the one who sends you all the information uh, and he's doing a brilliant job and Simon is here doing the filming for us and I'll do my part as well there's nothing more noble or glorious in this world than occupying ourselves seeking God serving God and worshiping him 
There's lots of other things that come to crowd that out, but really there's nothing more noble and glorious than that. Jesus had a lot to say about studying and listening to teaching. just want to read one verse to you. It's found in Matthew 13 and 23. He's teaching on the parable of the sower. This is what he says. But the one who receives the seed that fell on good ground, that is, entered your hearts. Your hearts are good ground. How do I know it's good ground? Because you're here. You've bothered to want to come to hear what God has to say, so your hearts are good. God loves that. God loves it when we present ourselves hungry and thirsty for what he wants to say on good soil is the person who hears the words so there's two things you have to do the person who hears it and then understands it hearing we can do but sometimes because we don't know much it's hard to understand because we can't link everything together so the more we study the more we listen the more it makes sense the more understanding it is it all sort of joins up together of course, the understanding is the understanding of God. We don't know a thing about God, but he reveals himself in here. And as we listen to his teaching, as we listen to his voice, as we listen to the scriptures, as we receive teaching, we start to understand how he thinks, how he acts, how he works, who he is, what he's really like. That's important that we sit and listen to the teaching of God's word. It says if we do that, he produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, and thirty times what was sown. That's a good return, isn't it? You sit for an hour a week or two hours a week and you will yield a tremendous harvest in your life, it's saying, as you listen and understand. Gonna pray and then uh, launch into this study. Father, I've already expressed uh, the thought, the reality, the truth that unless your Holy Spirit is here amongst us, uh, teaching us and explaining truths to us and warming our hearts and challenging us and encouraging us and Lord, uh, nothing happens, nothing of any real consequence. So, Lord, I present myself that I might speak the oracles of God. That sounds a bit grandiose, but that's what it says in Scripture, that we might stand and speak the oracles. And those that listen will have ears to hear what God is saying. So, Lord, we both present ourselves to you, the speaker and the listener, and say, Holy Spirit, come. Come and teach us, we pray in Jesus name before you get on a bus you probably need to look to see where it's going so I'm going to be fair to you I thought before we start this whole thing this teaching I'll tell you where we're going and um, then uh, when we've got there you'll know it's time to get off the bus so uh, let me tell you where we're going it's going to be for this week and the next three weeks. Most of my teachings come in those four-week modules, which if I take the full opportunity of all the time, that's about six hours. 
So we concentrate our thoughts and our attention for six hours. Now, obviously, if you want to learn more, you can go away and look into the background. There's so much stuff that I won't put in here, but if you've got an appetite, do it. Now, you won't be excited about every subject we look at. I understand that, but some, some subjects really capture our attention and we think, I must find out more about that. The goal of the Christian life is not to get to heaven. That's not it. If, if that's the goal, that would be a ridiculous goal because it's all done, the job's done. You're going. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you believe that Christ died for you, you're on the way there. You're going to get there. You're not, not going to get there. But that's not the goal. The goal of the Christian life is not necessarily to be good. Oh, I want you to be good. Everyone wants you to be good as well as God. But that's not the goal of the Christian life, to be good. The goal of the Christian life is this, and God repeats this in his scriptures many, many times. He says, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell in the midst of you. Now, if you like, you can push that into heaven. I don't like using that expression, heaven. I like the expression, the next world. And you'll understand why if you listen to me for any consistent period of time. You can push stuff into the next world. Of course, when we're in the next world and there's God amongst us and we're living with him, uh, he will dwell amongst us. But no, that's the goal now. That we will move forward with such a passion and an enthusiasm to get close to God and he will come out and join and meet with us that our everyday experience is living with God. You might have read books like Practicing His Presence, books like that where we're constantly, 24 hours a day, living, talking with God. Smith Wigglesworth, do you know that name? It's called The Apostle of Faith. I mean, apparently he rose people from the dead. They said in America, I read a book, he rose 23 people from the dead. I mean, he didn't raise 23 people from the dead in England, but then he went to America and they all rose from the dead. I'm not, I'm not being cynical, please. It's just sometimes when you read American stuff, it's different from when you read British stuff. So as long as you, you, you bear that stuff in mind. But so he did raise people from the dead. He was a tremendous man of faith, and I don't want to diminish that at all. Someone came to him and said, Smith, how long do you pray when you pray? And he said, I pray for about two minutes. And I said, what? You do those things, and yet you only pray for two minutes? Yes, he said, but I never let 15 minutes go past when I don't pray. You see, that's what God wants from us. The fact that we live through our day, not give him five minutes in the morning and then say nothing to him all day until we get home at night exhausted. Before we get into bed, just talk to him again for another five minutes. You go, what's that all about? Why did you ignore him all day? Why did you ignore the living God who longs for a relationship with you and you couldn't even bother to find the time? We need to break into our lives constantly 
steal a minute, steal a moment. When you're driving in the car or when you're standing in a queue or where you're just idle time, we have lots of idle time. When I worked and I had to fill in a timesheet, there was a thing called idle time. Sometimes I put too much into idle time and then I got hauled over the coals because I wasn't allowed to do that. It was costed to somebody. We have lots of idle time, but turn that idle time into God presence time. That's what God wants from us, that we live in his presence. Our life is a journey into the presence, into the very continuous present presence of God. His attention is on you every second of every moment of every day. And all he wants is for you to live with him. He will dwell with us and we will dwell with him and he will be in the center of our lives. The tabernacle then is a symbolic picture of a person journeying from the cross where this all started to the throne where he is seated above the universe. We will learn what is required as we journey into God. We will realize and we will discover how far we have traveled in journeying into God and how much further we've got to go. You might think you're a long way and you're actually further on than you think or you might think you're really in and you're a long way back. We will discover from this teaching where you are in your walk with him. Many Christians, they start to climb the mountain. They're on the lower slopes and they're enjoying all the fellowship and the walking and it's nice and it's, it's lovely. And then it gets a little bit steeper and they go, I think we'll just stay on the lower slopes. Others say, oh no, come on, we have to push on up. So they walk higher up the mountain, as it were, and they enjoy more, but there's fewer of them. And they say, this is, this is far enough. We don't need to go any further than this. There was a good exercise and we stretched our legs and listen, we did a whole lot better than those people down there. But there's a group of people and they are always the smallest group that say, no, we're going to the top. We're going to the top. Mind you what the Apostle Paul said in to the Philippians. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, when you read about Paul, you think, Paul, you're already streets ahead of everybody else on the planet. But he says, no, I have not arrived yet. I'm pressing on all the way until I get to the very end of where I can possibly go. The teaching of the tabernacle is how far you can go. And I want to so inspire you and encourage you and enthuse you that you say, yes, I'm going all the way. I'm not dilly-dallying back anymore. I'm not just staying around the slower slopes. I am one of those that gets to the top. It's open for everyone. 
there's a sense in which God has no favourites and he says, all of you can come up the mountain. Remember on Mount Sinai, when he called all them, he said, tell the people to prepare themselves to come up the mountain and to meet with me. But warn them that if they touch the mountain, I'll be angry with them. So as they prepared themselves, washed themselves, separated themselves, and then got ready to go up the mountain, of course there was thunder and billows of smoke and fire and everything coming out the mountain. And they were terrified. No, no, they said, Moses, you go. You go up the mountain for us, please. We'll stay here. Oh, no. Come on. Get up the mountain. Don't worry about the fire and the smoke and all the thunder and everything and how terrifying it would be to be in the presence of God. Push on up and get to the mountain. That was in Sinai. That was all those years ago in the book of Exodus he was talking like that. So much more to us today. Well, that was an introduction. Oh dear, I'm sorry. We haven't even gotten your notes yet. Uh, I'm always apologising for this, but some, some notes we go through very quickly. But uh, uh, I enjoy it so much that I hope you're enjoying it and we will, we will definitely uh, have a feast here tonight. The, the, the Bible has 50 chapters dedicated to the tabernacle. Can you believe it? 50 chapters. And some people go, I don't even know what it is. What are you talking about, the tabernacle? What is it? And yet the Bible dedicates so much to it. It's a symbolic picture as a, of a person's journey, as I said, from the cross to the throne room. This is, am I gonna, I've got to take this with me, I think. I'll get used to all this in a minute. Okay. Help me out here. Technical man. Is that it? That's the best I can do. Okay. All around you is the tabernacle. Do you know this building is called the tabernacle? If you look over the door, it says the tabernacle. How weird can you be? Okay, it's the tabernacle. Um, I went in the office here. And there's a picture of the tabernacle. Wonderful picture. Uh, do you think I might talk them into letting me have it? Do you think? I mean, it, is, it means so much to me. It, don't mean, it doesn't mean anything to half the people who walk in that office, but to me, it means so much. Anyway, I might talk them into that. I'm quite prepared to buy it. Okay, here's a model of it. I did this in lockdown. So please avail yourself of this. And come and look at that. It's, it's good detail there. There's some books on the front there that you can look at as well. See this this pattern that I've drawn. This this model. This is an area of an aerial view of the tabernacle. I will draw this so many times that you will dream about it. Okay, you will not forget this. I guarantee that by the time we finish this, I will have drawn that 30 times, and I will use it again and again and again because it is a pattern, a model, that God is showing us and giving us. Oh, wow. Okay. So, we're on a journey. If this is the tabernacle, 
I'll just go through quickly some things here. If you go in through the door of the tabernacle here, a tabernacle was a tent that they built in the wilderness, similar to that. Uh, this was an altar, this was a basin, and in here was another covered uh, tent area. This represents the cross of Christ. This is where the animals were sacrificed for the forgiveness of sins. And this is where Jesus Christ uh, was sacrificed on a cross. This is where God dwells. Okay, so this is the throne of God. There you go. I'm sure God will be tolerant with me. Okay. So the journey for us is from the cross, when you started out on this Christian journey, to the throne room of God from the cross to the throne. So you can see in the pattern that he's given Moses right at the beginning, it is the journey that people were making in approaching God through the door, past this, past this, through another door, through all these things here, through another door and into the very throne room of God. It is a journey, it is a pattern, it is a picture of our journey from the cross to the throne. It's a pattern that God has established for our maturity, our going on in God. None of us should ever stay babies. We don't do it in the natural. We grow up in everything. We must grow up in our Christian life. And in our Christian walk, we must go on to maturity. Going on to then maturity. Going on into the holiness. The way of holiness is maturity. Going on to maturity. Hebrews chapter 6. I want to read to you the first two or three verses of Hebrews 6. It says, Therefore... Let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity. So there is teaching about Christ that's elementary. And to go on, we have to leave this elementary teaching behind. We have to establish it and move on from it. Don't keep there. Don't keep staying there at the elementary teaching. Get that under your belt, as it were, and move on. Not laying again, so this elementary teaching, it says not laying again the foundation. So the elementary teachings that we should all have by now, depending how long we've been a Christian, they are the foundations to our Christian life. And he lists six of them here. Now, I'm happy that there's just six. There might be more. You might think, well, I think this is an elementary teaching that we need to establish and move on from that. So he lists them for us. Repentance from acts that lead to death. Faith in God. Instructions in baptisms. The laying on of hands. The resurrection of the dead. Eternal judgment. And God permitted, he says, we'll do this. We'll establish the elementary teachings and move on. Not going back to them again, re-examining them, looking at them. Let's move on so we can move on in God. We can mature in him 
This list is very interesting if you look at it. It has three sets of twos. One is about our past, one pair is about our present, and the next pair are about the future. So the past are repentance and faith. All of you have come to Christ. In coming to Christ, you exercise repentance and faith. Otherwise, you couldn't have come. You couldn't have got in. You wouldn't have started. So that's, that's historic. But you need to know all about repentance and all about faith. The next two are baptisms and the laying on of hands. This is the present. The baptisms are doorways that God opens up for blessings to come into our lives. They're doorways of blessing. But then the laying on of hands is having received the blessing is to go and give it to someone else. The laying on of hands is the process of blessing other people always, whether it's in deliverance or it's in healing or whatever it is, we, we lay hands on people to impart blessing. That's the present. And then the last two is the resurrection from the dead. Well, none of you have experienced that, I know. And it's judgment, and none of you have experienced that yet. So they're future things. So can I say to you, your salvation is past, present, and future. You were saved. You could say, listen, I was saved on this day, on this day, I remember believing in Jesus Christ, and God saved me. That's true. If once you believe who Jesus claims to be, you're saved. So salvation is something that's historic. But you're being saved mostly from yourself today because you're a mess still. So he's saving you still. Now, if you die today, you're still safe in heaven, even though you might be in a mess in certain areas of your life. That's, that's, that goes with it. And then in the future, you'll only know you're really saved after the resurrection and the judgment. You say, yes, here we are. We've done it. Let's quickly go through these foundational things. Now, I do a whole module on the foundation, so that's sometime in the future. So I'm just going to quickly go over these, uh, just to touch on them a little bit. Repentance from acts that lead to death. Actually, in your margin, if you look in your margin, it says repentance from useless rituals. Now, bear in mind, it's to the book of the Hebrews. Now, these are mostly Jewish people with a Jewish tradition and background, and they often thought that carrying through the rituals would have saved them. The washing of their hands, we do a lot of that now, don't we? And uh, the, the eating of certain foods and the wearing of certain clothes and the sacrifices of the animals, these became the rituals that opened the door for them to fellowship with God. I understand that. But he says, no more. We now have repentance, not, uh, so in repentance, I'll explain that in a minute, in coming to God, not the rituals that we follow, so turn away from the rituals. You're not saved by what you do, you know that, don't you? You're saved by what you believe, but your belief will lead you to do things. So it's not like, well, I believe and I can do what I like. Oh, no, no. If you don't do it, I question whether you even believe it. Because once we believe, there is a change in our habits and in the way that we live our lives. Repentance is not saying sorry. 
sorry doesn't cut it with God did you know that he's not even listening for your sorries you can fall on the cry on the floor and cry and wail to God how awful you feel you are and what a terrible thing you've done and the next week do the same thing and God goes what's all that about repentance is a change of will it's saying I believe this about God that he was rubbish and he didn't exist and he wasn't going to have anything to do with my life but now I believe that God's word is true and I'm going to follow him the major repentance is the turning away from thinking what we did think about God to what we do think about God and that's repentance it is a change of mind it is an act of your will but you know us Brits we say sorry so much don't we please and thank you and sorry until we make everyone fed up with us and so it's a bit of a cultural thing now listen I, I'm not saying listen if you offend me you need to come and say Philip will you forgive me see I never let my kids say sorry to each other growing up because sorry didn't mean anything I said if you've done something wrong to your brother you go to your brother and say to him will you forgive me see it is the acknowledgement of guilt number one I have done something wrong but it takes the other brother to say to him yes I forgive you sorry doesn't need a response it doesn't need an answer will you forgive me always requires an answer yes or no and if he says yes in the yes I forgive you there is a spiritual dynamic that brings a bonding between the two that have a broken relationship faith faith isn't simply believing that God exists it's much more than that the faith that the writer here is talking about is a faith that is total dependence on God total we know his character and we know his faithfulness so we trust in this God who will never let us down never turn away from us never stop loving us never not forgive us never 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 doing thousands of things this is the God we know and trust and love and therefore that's faith it doesn't start like that your faith starts small but as you walk on this road your faith grows bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and so people say oh isn't this pandemic terrible he goes mm, I don't know what to say because I've got faith in the living God who sorted all this out he knows the end from the beginning and everything else it is terrible it is miserable but it doesn't mean that God isn't in charge we have a faith in God that God will see us through, that God will sustain us, that God will walk with us. That's the sort of faith we're talking about here. A total dependence on God. Baptisms. It talks about baptism, not one. There are four baptisms, at least in the scriptures. If I dig deeper, I can find six, but I'm going to stick with the four. There's the baptism of water where we're baptized in water after our confession of, of faith in Jesus Christ and that is a baptism of righteousness not of repentance not of repentance a baptism of righteousness there is the baptism in the Holy Spirit where after we have been saved and the Spirit of God comes into us God says do you want the fullness of the Spirit do you want to receive him in his fullness you go, oh, I'm not sure about that oh well he doesn't force it on you 
what will happen if I receive the fullness? Well, you'll probably speak in tongues. <gasps> Don't want to do that. Come on. That's another lesson. Moving on quickly. Okay. The baptism in fire. Now, you don't want a baptism in fire. John the Baptist spoke about a baptism in fire. It's where all the, all the chaff in your life gets burnt up. Painful experience. Oh, we don't want too much of that. And God does space it out a bit because we couldn't cope with it otherwise. And finally, we have the baptism in suffering. Paul said, I want to fellowship and share in the sufferings of Christ that I might know the power of his resurrection. We're all for that one, aren't we? Baptism into suffering. Amen. Yes, Philip, preach it. We want it. Uh, I'm not sure about that one. If you mean business with God, you will suffer. It's the end of it. Get used to it. Because to move on, to climb the mountain, to get to the top, those mountaineers suffer to get to the top. Any analogy you want to use, it's suffering. To go all the way is painful, but it's worth it. It's worth it for the view at the top. It's worth it being on the top of the world. It's worth it. The laying on of hands simply the impartation of blessing you know as i study this i found that many people they didn't pray for people to get healed they touched them jesus never prayed for the sick did you know ever ever why would he do that he was full of the power of god and he knew that if he touched someone the power that was in him flowed through them we have power that comes from the spirit of god and as we walk with God, we don't have to pray for the sick. We simply lay hands on them. Lay hands on the sick. Lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now, it's not wrong to pray. But some of the times when we pray, we ask God to do it. So if it doesn't happen, it's not our fault. I never said that. Moving on. Fifthly, we got the resurrection of the dead. We live with an eternal perspective. If your life is focused on this life it sucks it sucks it doesn't work it's quite miserable because I've just told you it gets harder all the way you go but if we have an eternal perspective this is just the preamble we can make mistakes here we can get it all wrong here this isn't the real thing this is a cartoon it's important, it's real, it's vibrant, it feels, it hurts, it's wonderful. But there's a life. There is a resurrected life that we live. And the last one is eternal judgment. You will be judged by everything you've ever said and done. You will be. Now, is God going to judge you? No. Is Jesus going to judge you? No. Who's going to judge me? The Word. The Word will judge you. The Word judges you now. If I pick this up and read it, and I'm not doing something right, it judges me. It says, Philip, you're not doing this. So one day I will stand before Jesus. 
He is my advocate. You understand? He can't be my judge and my advocate. He is my advocate. He represents me. He can't prosecute me if he represents me. But when he reads the word out and he'll say, how did you do on this one? You just bow your head. Bow your head. But he'll say, listen, we got this much, all this right. Well done. Thou good and faithful. So keep your eye or understand the teaching of the judgment because we will give an account for everything. Now, Danny's looking at the time for me, so when he does like this, I'll stop and then we have a little break. That's it. So I can motor for hours. You understand this now, don't you? I can keep going. Okay, so, okay. <laughs> we lay a foundation in our lives. If we don't lay a foundation in our lives, these foundational truths, we can never become strong Christians. So if you don't know these things, understand these things, you need to, because you can't build your Christian life any higher than what the foundations are you've laid. You know that about buildings, don't you? If you want to build a 10-story building, you've got to go deeper into the ground. If you want to build a one-story building, you don't spend thousands of pounds going deep into the ground. Unless you build on a rock, then you don't dig anywhere. I understand that. But if you want to go high, You've got to go deep. So buildings are built on strong foundations. A Christian life is built on the strong foundations that we have here. So I thought Jesus was our foundation. He is. He's your personal foundation. He's everything. He's your all in all. He is everything. When we go through this tabernacle, you think, oh, there's Jesus again. He's in the curtains. He's in the doors. He's in the posts. He's in the pillars. He's in the bread. He's in everything. Jesus is everywhere. He's through everything. But we need a doctrinal foundation as well. It's not just good enough to know Jesus. You need a doctrinal foundation. The weakness in quite a number of evangelical churches, of which, looking at everyone here, we all go to, is the fact that they don't teach anything more than the foundations. You can judge this for yourself. If you go to church and I'm not criticizing anyone, please, I would, I don't do that. This is for your observation, just to understand where your church is and what it's teaching. You can be sure that the person who's standing in front of you is doing his utmost, his best. He's listened to God and he's seeking to bring a word. But a lot of evangelical churches, they don't move away from the foundations. They preach about repentance how you mustn't do this and you mustn't do that and you should do this and you should do that that's just repentance and then they teach you to have faith in god you go what's wrong with that phil that's good teaching it was on week one bearable on week two but you don't need it on week three see that's not the gospel anymore it was the gospel when you'd never heard it but it isn't the good news, the gospel to you anymore. If someone hasn't heard it before, it's gospel, it's great, it's wonderful. But for us who've gone along, 
it's not good enough so next time you sit in church and listen to a sermon is say is this foundational or is this person moving me on is this person challenging me is this person pushing me forward in the things of God we must go beyond foundation to complete the building you'd think it funny if you visit a building site and they were forever building the foundation <laughs> what about the building now I'll tell you something about building sites people put up boards and it seems forever that they're working behind here nothing happens what they do they're building the foundation and all of a sudden you drive past in the bus or the car the next day and you go whoa look at that where did all that come from and the week later it's whoa and it's all got glass in it it happens so quick once we've got the foundation there the building goes up quick it's because we haven't got a foundation that we put a few things in and it all topples over again and we go oh, i've got to strengthen this foundation up put in a strong foundation and build and build and build don't worry about the foundation if it's good leave it there and keep building if we never go beyond the foundation it's impossible to complete the building if we don't have a good foundation we'll never get here we'll still be here we'll still be we'll still be around the cross around the word around the cross around the word and he's saying no come on up come up through the holy place into the holy holies move on through going on to maturity how many of you were brought up on the authorized version of the word of god no one oh yes yes what word do they use i'm sorry i'm picking on you you can take your mask off to answer apparently big opportunity do you know what word was used instead of maturity go on to i'm sorry if i embarrass you i mean i'll pick on some weird old verse in the bible and expect you to know the authorized version of it it says go on to perfection go on to perfection the only trouble is that our use of perfection is not the biblical use of it so that's why they changed it to maturity you see to be perfect i have to be perfect in other words nothing wrong with me but maturity isn't perfection as we're talking about there maturity is growing up so even as a man that i am i still make mistakes ask my son don't i make mistakes yes i do yeah i do yeah fewer i understand but i make mistakes but that doesn't mean i'm not mature it means i'm not perfect i'm not perfect so maturity is a better the actual literal meaning of the word and i'm not a greek scholar i'll tell you that i'm not a hebrew scholar i have to depend on others and trust others the word means the end in view the end in view let's go on with the end in view and I've told you what the end in view is it's living constantly in the presence of God 24 hours a day that's the end in view we're encouraged to lay the foundation and then go on to fulfillment and completion in God salvation is not static we've already looked at this 
It's past and present and future. We're getting saved every day. We're moving on. The way of maturity is unfolded for us in the book of Hebrews. To show you a book, please don't rush out and buy this book. If you want to look at it, you can. This is one of the best books, uh, a commentary, as it were, but it's more than a commentary on the book of Hebrews by a man called Andrew Murray. He's passed away now, great scholar of God. Uh, but you can have a look at it, but don't rush off and buy it unless you particularly, particularly want to study Hebrews in, in a lot of death. He, he looks at every word. So, unfolded for us, Moses unfolded for the people their way of approaching God from here to here, what it would take to go from there to go. The book of Hebrews is Paul writing they think it's Paul, to the Hebrew people explaining under the new covenant how we get from the cross to the throne. So a lot of the quotes that I'll share with you over the next four weeks will be from the book of Hebrews. The first one I gave you was from the book of Hebrews. And one module will be on the book of Hebrews. Yes, fantastic book. So that's it. We're going to have a little break now. Officially, if there was tea and coffee and everything, the, the break might extend and you could all talk to one another. But in this weird situation where you sit there now and just drink your water uh, and not talk to a soul, we'll probably be back in 10 minutes or so. God bless you. The tabernacle is the pattern of maturity. God's plan for how we can come into his presence. Let's turn to another scripture, Hebrews 8. 4 and 5. It says, if he, that is Jesus, were on the earth, he would not be a priest. They serve at the sanctuary. That is, it's a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, said, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you in the mountain. I want to focus your attention on three words that the, the author there writes uh, about the tabernacle. It says it's a pattern that is of something that is in heaven. It's a copy. It's a shadow. And he says to Moses, listen, when you go back down from Mount Sinai now, you make sure you build it exactly like I've shown you. All the dimensions, all the sizes, because it's vital, because it shows people something it's a pattern for something of the future a copy a shadow and a pattern the tabernacle unfolds for us away into the holiest of god into the holy place where god is that's what we're seeking to do to move forward in life and so we're living in his presence into the very presence of almighty god in this uh, pattern that he's showing us, true, two truths relating to each other, the way into the holiest, a pattern in heaven that has been set in heaven, and then a physical thing made on earth. We, we now are the temple of God. Once God lived in a temple made of hands in the tabernacle. 
after the tabernacle, there was the temple that was built by Solomon and later a temple built by Herod. And God lived in, in there. He presenced himself in that place. But now the temple has been destroyed, removed. Not, I don't believe to be rebuilt again because our bodies are the temple and now God dwells within us. It says in Hebrews 9, 7 and 8, it says, but only the high priest entered the inner room and that only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sin the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. While the tabernacle existed and while the temple existed, only the priest could enter in to the holy place, into the presence of God. And he could only go in there once a year. So living uh, and coming into the presence of God was, it just wasn't permitted. It was totally restricted apart from this one concession once a year. The other priests weren't even allowed into the presence of God. They, they had to stay back. They could serve in the holy place, but not the holy of holies. The people generally, the, the great masses of people, they could only enter into the outer court. They couldn't even go further in. We know uh, from reading the New Testament what happened is that when Christ died on the cross, we know that the curtain that separated the holiest of holies from the holy place, it was torn, ripped from top to bottom. The, 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 the curtain in the tabernacle was only something like 15 foot high. But the, the curtain in the, the temple of God, it stood 60 feet high, like six story building. It must have weighed a, an absolute ton. And what God did, he ripped it from heaven. He ripped it open. And so not so much that people could go in, but God could come out and be with his people. Something God always wanted. God had imprisoned himself in a way, had restricted himself from being able to be amongst his people because, because of the sin that was in their heart. And that could never be removed. That could only be removed by the blood of Jesus because of the sin in their heart. Then God could not come out and be with his people. They would have died instantly in his presence. But through Christ dying on the cross and cleansing our hearts of sin, the curtain was ripped open so that God could go out and be amongst us. And we too could enter in to the presence of almighty God. So under the Mosaic Covenant, only the high priest could go in and that once a year. But under this wonderful new covenant that we experience, we can go into the presence of God constantly, continually. And God's desire for us, the going on to maturity, is that every moment of every day we are, we are conscious and present with God, a continual presence of God. That's what God desires, is that we live with him. Now, uh, 
as we practice this, it becomes it becomes easier. But it is something of a struggle. Usually people, uh, they might rise in the morning and have some time with God, and then they just get on with their work. They're busy, busy through the day. And then in, in the evening, they might give some time to God, or they might go to a meeting, and, and it's as though God has, has not been engaging with them for the whole day. Uh, that's not ideal. Ideal is that we constantly live in the presence of God, conscious of his presence all the time, taking every opportunity to fellowship with him. Hebrews 10 now, verses 19 and 20, says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body. When, when Jesus was on earth, his dwelling place was not in the holiest of holies. It was in the holy place. The holy place was a place of service. Uh, the priests that were in there, they constantly had to look after the, the, the table of showbread to make sure the bread was there each week. The mixing the resin for the, um, for the golden altar of incense where an aroma was completely, uh, was constantly rather, burning up into the presence of God. And the oil from the menorah was constantly burning uh, in there. So they had to maintain these things all the time. Of course, they were going out and dealing with sacrifices and coming back in again and just maintaining everything. So it's a place of service. Jesus was in service when he was here. He came to serve. Uh, but then at the end, it says that his, he opened up a way for us to go into the holy place. His body, as it were, the flesh was ripped from his body, which is a type of the, the curtain. The, fle the flesh has to be ripped from us, as it were. And then as Christ uh, died on the cross and the curtain uh, was ripped into it was a way in. It's, it's all a symbolic picture of us being allowed now through the new covenant and what Christ has done on the cross so we can live permanently in his presence. Entry has been made possible through the new covenant. <laughs> you know, I was meditating on this and I thought, poor old King David. King David was passionate, wasn't he, about God. I mean, you just read the Psalms, how he loved him. And it's, it said of David, he was a man after God's own heart, which means he would have done anything if God asked him to do anything. Now, he, 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 there was sin in his life. And of course, to an extent, there'll always be sin in our lives. But he was passionate. But, but with all his passion and desire for God, he could never stand in God's presence physically. He couldn't even stand in God's presence spiritually. But we can. And so often, the Christian takes this privilege that he has, that we can live in the presence of God continually. We take it so lightly. And we don't bother about it. <laughs> Isn't that often the way? That which we, we have and have plenty of, we count it as nothing or little. Okay. The theme, the theme of our study is how to enter into that holy place. 
That's what we're driving at over these four weeks. How can we uh, move forward in our lives so we live constantly in the very presence of God? How do we enter into His holiness? Well, there, there are three, if we look at our, uh, our uh, illustrations or, or model of the tabernacle, I am. Uh, I need to apologise for those of you who are listening on the podcast because in the classroom we have pictures and, and models and I can use the flip chart and I can draw things, which is a little bit tricky for you. So um, I'll bear in mind that um, uh, I'll try and explain things a little more clearly. But you should, in, in your notes, if you've downloaded your notes, there is a picture of the tabernacle. It's an aerial view, uh, sort of a, a, a model, of, um, a plan of it. And so if you can have that, and, and maybe you can get some other photos or pictures of the tabernacle and that. And so as I talk about it, it's more visual in your face as well. But we see if we look at the plan of the tabernacle, there are, there are three distinct areas. And what we're going to do, we're going to compare these with the triune nature of man. Uh, the, the three areas of the tabernacle, and we're going to also look at a parallel picture of man. The, the three areas of man, they are his body, his soul, and his spirit. And we are going to consider them uh, in parallel with uh, the, the tabernacle, which too has three areas, it has an outer court, it has a holy place, and it has the holiest of holies. There is a prescribed way physically into the holiest of holies. There is a, uh, a prescribed way that our life, first body, soul and spirit, enters into the very presence of God. In our study, as we go through the weeks, we will look at the different pieces of furniture uh, and how they, uh, what they represent and how they lead us into the very presence of God. If you're looking at your, uh, your, your plan, you'll see there are seven pieces of furniture that we have to consider. There is, as you come in, uh, uh, from the east side of the tabernacle, uh, you first see the, the, the altar, the brass altar, uh, where sacrifices are made as you move a little bit further along to the left. You'll see a basin where the priests would wash their hands and their feet. Then we come into the actual tent part, which is uh, divided into two sections. The first section uh, is two-thirds of the length of the tent and the last section is one-third. In, in, the, in, the, in that first section, well, like I said, we see the menorah, we see the table and we see the golden altar of incense. And inside then at the room at the back is where God dwells, the holiest of holies. We see the, the Ark of the Covenant, which is covered by the mercy seat. Seven, seven pieces. These seven, they represent a lot about us. And uh, as we study these, uh, we'll, we'll be able to uh, discover more and more about how we can press on into his presence. This, this is a very practical teaching. I'm a great believer in all 
a biblical teaching should be practical. At the end of the day, when you've listened to a teaching or you've listened to a sermon, it should apply to your life. You think, well, it's not just head knowledge, but it's how do I need to change? What what difference has to happen? What what is God saying that He wants to uh, do in me to to develop the very character of Christ in in my life? So all teaching should lead to some change. I've also discovered that in growing up, to lay hold of new teaching, I have to sometimes discard old teaching. If I simply cling to the old, I can't learn the new. It's a bit like when children go to a primary school or uh, they're being taught at home. Children have to be taught things very, very simply. Very straightforward, not complicated. Then as the child grows, he sees that, well, life isn't quite as simple as that. And there are more complications. So to lay hold of the new, he's got to let go of the old. is <laughs> a little bit of a, a silly uh, illustration of that. We might say to little children, listen, you need to be good. God loves good people. If you're good, you go to heaven. If you're not good, you won't go to heaven. Now, that sounds very simplistic, and it's, it might be what a child can comprehend. But you know none of that is true. Well, it's true that God wants us to be good. God wants everyone to be good, and everyone wants everyone to be good. But the truth is, uh, it's not just good people that go to heaven, and bad people go somewhere else. That's just not the truth. You know that's not the truth. So... But it's good enough for when we're children, but as we grow up, of course, we have to uh, develop different ways of understanding things, and, and things are not quite like that. So all my life I'm changing. As I learn more things, I have to alter what I, I said or learned in the past so I can keep growing and moving on in Him. God has opened a way for us. The challenge is to us, are you bold enough to go in? Are you ready to go in? Do you want to go in to the presence of God? See, because there are lots of things in life that will challenge you, challenge your time, that want to draw you away, want to hold you back from boldly going where no man has gone before. Well, not quite. Jesus opened a way, and now the way is open for all of us. The journey then, from the cross to the throne. There's no shortcuts. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps you've discovered this. You know, maybe something went wrong in your life, and, and God tried to teach you a lesson through that. It wasn't telling you off or, or treating you harshly. He took it, he took advantage of whatever happened to teach you things, but you refused to learn. So unfortunately, as the time went on, you went through a similar sort of challenge again, and you thought, oh, I know what the answer is to this. I've, I've got to do it God's way. I've got to respond to it the way that God wants. And of course, once we, we've learned that, we can move on. So you can't skip years. You can't skip challenges. God is going to do a thorough job in transforming us into the character of Christ. And so it takes time. There is a prescribed journey then with no shortcuts.
Now, you have the legal right to enter in uh, to, to the very presence of God. But it's a long journey. You say, Philip, how long will this take us? Well, I think God leaves us around here long enough to be able to get in. So I reckon it's about 60 years. You say, Philip, no, I want to go into the presence of God tomorrow. Mm, I'm sorry. We have to grow into this. It's like saying a little baby says or a little child says, I want to be a granddad. <laughs> well, you will probably be a granddad one day, but you have to go through your childhood years, your adolescent years, a young adult, get married, have children, if that's what you choose to do, um, become, become a grandparent. And it's the same in coming into the presence of God that no shortcuts we have to just go through the different processes until we enter into that place. It's, it's to do often with just being able to just keep going. A couple of examples of this. I remember when I was a boy of about 12 uh, at school and um, I had a brother two years older than me and he was, it was, he was relatively smart. And uh, I wasn't as quite as smart as him. But I remember one day in the corridor, uh, I met my maths teacher. And uh, he spoke to me. Uh, it's funny, isn't it, how of, of the millions of conversations, just one or two sometimes just stick. And, and the others seem to drift away from your life. But this is what he said to me. And he was being polite. It, it, as I say, it wasn't quite as rude as he said, but he said something like this. He said, your brother is really clever, but, but you're not as clever as him. But he said, listen, you can get to where he's got if you stick at it. He said, you need stickability. And that stuck with me. And I think, you know, often with the things of God, you might think that you're not good enough or you're not smart enough or you're not spiritual enough. Listen, Stick at it. Just stick at it. When, when we meet our Lord, he won't commend us for being really smart or, or gifted. He will commend us for being faithful. Faithful people stick at things and they just keep going on. Also, I remember oh, a good few years after that, uh, probably about between my 20s and 30s, I had an, an old pastor, a lovely pastor, uh, just loved to teach the Word of God, very encouraging man, and he always spoke about the 11th commandment. And he said, it's this, thou shalt bash on. You shall just keep going, just keep going. And, and another... Uh, a modern thing that we talk about today, uh, you might have heard or, or heard it sung about or read, they talk about breakthrough, breakthrough. Uh, often we think it's God trying to break through, but it's not. It's we that have to do the breaking through. God is everywhere. God fills the whole universe. God, God is ahead of us and behind us. If there's going to be any breaking through, it's us that has to break through now. To break through in the natural, you have to keep banging away. You have to keep pushing forward. You have to have a tenacity. And eventually, you break through. So breaking through is not a miracle thing that just pops into being. It is the perseverance. 
and that keep going forward that we reach our goal. I'm going to talk now mostly the rest of this week and uh, definitely all of next week on the symbolism of the tabernacle. Remember uh, what God said to Moses. He said, listen, build it exactly like I tell you. Don't change anything. It's a bit like the scriptures, isn't it? It's like, I've given you the scriptures. Now, listen, don't change the scriptures. They've been given to you by God from heaven, so don't mess with them. And this is basically what he said to Moses. He said, build it exactly as I've told you. Because the, the symbolism, it means so much. I said about uh, the structure of uh, the tabernacle relating to three distinct areas. You know, in, in studying the tabernacle and teaching on the tabernacle, um, it, it depicts more than the nature of man. It can be applied to many things in Scripture that comes in threes. So uh, if we wanted to, we could teach the tabernacle in relation to the nature of God. See, we know that God is three parts. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the holiest of holies we could teach on the Father. Uh, the outer core would be the Son, where Jesus is, and the holy place is the Holy Spirit. So, yeah, we could teach the nature of God from the tabernacle. We could teach the nature of heaven from the tabernacle. We know there is the first heaven, which would be the outer core, which is where we live in natural sunlight. Then we have the second heaven, which is the holy place, where the, the spiritual activity of this world takes place. Uh, and then we have the third heaven, which would be the holiest of holies, where God lives. He dwells in the heavens of heavens. Uh, we could study the, the nature of life. In John's epistle, John speaks of the three stages of, of man's development. He talks about children, young men, and fathers. So the children could be the, the outer court. He says of the children, all children know is that they're saved. Then the young men could refer to the holy place, uh, where it says young men know know the word of God and they know how to overcome the evil one and the, th the third stage would be fathers and uh, fathers would represent they would be represented by the holiest of holies and it says fathers know their God so we could use any of these use the tabernacle to teach on any of these but what we're going to teach on and, and um, identify it with is the nature of man Man is three parts, his body, his soul, and his spirit. So the body, we're going to look at the outer court for the soul, the holy place, and for the spirit, the holy of holies. We shall study then the nature of man, relating the tabernacle of holiness to his nature. If we need a basic scripture for this, we can turn to 1 Thessalonians, 
5 and uh, verse 23. It says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, or holy, it says in some interpretations, may your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is sanctifying you, not only in your spirit, but in your soul, that's your mind, your will and your emotion or your passion, and also in your body. Uh, for the sake of teaching, we often separate out body, soul and spirit. We, we talk in terms of it like as if it were a model. Uh, but, but the reality is you cannot separate the three parts of you. you. You are complete. You are whole. Body, soul and spirit. You're, God is just as interested in saving your body as he is in saving your spirit and saving your soul. So the three areas uh, of the personality that make up the human being. It's interesting, we talk about body, soul and spirit because if I were to look at you, I would see your body, I would experience something of your soul by the way you spoke and the way you thought and those sorts of things. But I would know inside you, deep down inside you, there was a spirit. But see, when God speaks, he speaks from the inside out. He speaks about spirit soul and body we are to present ourselves spirit soul and body to god interesting when you read about the tabernacle in the book of exodus when it comes to describing it we will describe it from the outside going to the center god describes it and writes it in the bible from the holiest of holies and then he moves outwards why because god lives at the very heart and center God is always wanting to be in the middle of everything, just as he's wanting to be in the middle and the centre of your lives. The Holy of Holies then is our spirit. So once it was dead to God because of Adam's sin, but now through Christ it's been made alive. It can now fellowship and communicate and relate to God again. The holy place is the soul. Uh, our mind, our will and our emotions, but a, a better word than emotion, because emotion is something that goes up and down, is, I think, is the word passion. Our passion, uh, that which, which passionately moves us forward. With our passion, we, we love and, and we hold things. And then the outer court, which is the body. Paul tells us very clearly in the epistle to the Romans that we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices unto God. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, with the body. Any sin that you committed, you committed it with your body. Uh, any good that you did, you did it in your body. When Jesus comes and judges the church, he will come in bodily form and we will be resurrected and we will stand before him in bodily form because the good and the bad that we did, we did in our bodies. Our first observation then of the tabernacle as we look at it and study it is the, the, three, the three areas are illuminated quite differently. 
The outer court is illuminated by natural sunlight, by the moon and, and the stars. This represents sense knowledge, that which we hear and understand with our mind. I do believe that salvation is for all and not for an elect people. And when the gospel is presented to people and they hear the facts and the truth about Jesus, it's, it's, it's through the sense knowledge. And have, everyone can either choose to believe the claims of Jesus or not. They need to, with their sense knowledge, need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came to die for the forgiveness of people's sins, and that people are sinners and they need to receive God's plan of salvation and redemption. If they choose not to, then they will not be saved. If they choose to believe what Christ has said about himself, then God will grant them righteousness. He will clothe them in righteousness and they will be acceptable in his sight. So the outer court is about sense knowledge. When we go into the holy place, the sun and the moon and the stars cannot penetrate into the holy place. This is, like I said, represents the, the soul of a man. The only thing that lights up the holy place is the menorah, the seventh branch candlestick, where oil is continually uh, fueled into the thing and, and it burns. And, and this, this is the area that represents revealed knowledge. Once we considered God, Jesus, after the flesh, but now it's revealed to us by the Spirit. So in our sense knowledge, once we've accepted, then we move on to receiving revealed knowledge. I always think it's quite interesting how Mary, remember when she sat outside of the tomb uh, after Jesus had died and uh, he'd, he'd resurrected, and of course she was under the impression that someone had stolen his body away. And so she's, she's weeping outside the tomb and um, a man comes and stands and, and talks to her uh, to comfort her and, and she, she turns to him and she doesn't recognise him. She just speaks to him, and assuming that she's, he's the gardener or someone, and, and she asks, what have you done with the Lord's body? See, she could not, she could not now uh, recognise Jesus in the flesh, as it were. It had to be revealed to her by the Spirit. And so, as soon as he speaks to her and says the word Mary, uh, it's sort of, it was a revelation some people suggested, well, she didn't realise who he was because she was crying too much. Well, that's, no, 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 no. It had to be revealed to her by the Spirit. We get the same illustration a few days later with the two men that worked, walked with him on the road to Emmaus. Uh, they don't realise who he is. They can't, they can't see who he is until it is revealed to them when he breaks the bread. And they think, oh, this is the Christ. He had spent hours talking to them, walking with them. They were his disciples, and not, not the twelve, uh, but they didn't recognise who he was. The, the third area that we enter into, again speaks of illumination. Uh, if you had 
uh, gone into the holiest of holies, you would have entered into a, a, a like a cube, 15 foot uh, wide, 15 foot long and 15 foot high, totally black. There's no sun or moon or stars can light that room up. The menorah isn't in there. There is no fuel to light it. The only thing that can light the holiest of holies is the glory of God. Uh, it's what the, um, uh, the the Jewish people called the Shekinah. It, it's not a biblical word, but it uh, it appears in r- rabbinical literature. The glory of God, the glory of God, was in that holy of holies. It was the dwelling, the settling of God. Uh, it literally means the manifest indwelling presence of Almighty God in the midst of his people. Uh, There was a sort of a, again, this isn't in scripture, but the idea that the priests, uh, when the the high priest rather, when he went into the holiest of holies once a year, they would tie a rope around uh, one of his legs. And if for some reason he he was unacceptable to God in coming in, and, and he died, they could, they could haul him out, uh, pull him out with, with the rope. Well, uh, I don't think that ever happened, and it's definitely not in the Bible, but, but we'll, we'll stay with that. Uh, but I just want you to imagine him going into the holy place. He would have a, a basin full of blood and uh, some branches of hyssop, and then he would have had um, uh, the incense bowl, and so going in, he would have waved the incense quite furiously so he could have filled the air around him full of smoke, as it were, almost hiding from the presence of God. And then as he goes in to the Holy of Holies, as he kneels before the mercy seat of God, he would have then, using the, the hyssop branches, just splashed blood on the mercy seat of God. And then God would have seen that and he would have, uh, he would have acted as an atonement for the sins they committed in ignorance. And after he had fulfilled that function, he would have withdrawn himself from the holiest of holies. In that place, in the presence of God, God then will give us direct revelation from himself. Sense knowledge, reveal truth, direct revelation. Phil, what is direct revelation? What does that look like? What are you talking about? This is the nearest that I can come to it. Sometimes I, because I'm preparing sermons or talks all the time, I'm asking God, God, what do you want me to talk about? What do you, Lord, just speak to me because you want to speak to these people. And maybe I'm visiting a church and I don't know what's going on there or that. And then as I wake some mornings, and this has happened more than once, I just get a revelation from God, a direct revelation. And it's like the whole message comes in one, one package. And I know exactly what God wants me to say. 
It isn't like the Holy Spirit revealing truth to me. It is a direct revelation of what God wants to say. Well, that brings our teaching this evening uh, to a close. So just thank you for your attentiveness. And uh, next week we'll continue uh, to discover what the, the symbols of the tabernacle mean to us. God bless you.